Hi, and welcome to a Dad's Path podcast. We're real dads solving everyday problems. Each week we tackle issues that dads everywhere face and deliver actions you can take right away. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode and go to adadspath.com to get our free newsletter exclusively for dads. Our goal is to help you make fatherhood count. Dad on. Hello, and welcome to another episode of A Dad's Path Podcast. I'm Will Bronstein. Today, we're here with Dr. Rebecca Jackson. She's no stranger to the impact of the pandemic on children of all ages. She wrote a book called Back on Track, which offers guidance for parents to help them support their kids in achieving important developmental milestones at school, at home, and at play. And it goes from birth through teenage years, so it covers it all. Rebecca is the Chief Programs Officer of Brain Balance, and this book is the culmination of two decades of learning, practice, research, some there, some elsewhere, paired with observations from pandemic times that highlight what's needed to maximize development in today's day and age. Each chapter discusses how to add purposeful activities, so it's very action-oriented, to impact development from birth to the teenage years, etc. You know, the pandemic was really stressful on kids, it was stressful on all of us. We don't know what the future holds, and we know that as parents, though, we're in charge of our kids. So it's our job to parent and make sure our kids hit as many milestones as, as they can. So back on track. It's available for purchase on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. We're going to get into it. But thank you, Rebecca, for joining us. I'm really excited about this conversation. Thanks for having me. I have to say I, I talk to parents all the time, but to have an entire audience of dads is really exciting to me. Awesome. Yeah, we're we're like we're like normal parents, but just... Dads. <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> Just dads, you know. So yeah, I, I guess can we let's start with brain balance and what sure. you do there, what that what what they do and and how that led to the book, maybe. Yeah. So brain balance is a program that is focused on strengthening and maximizing the brain. We work with both kids and adults, and I've been there for 15 years. And so for 15 years, I've gotten to experience firsthand the impact of when developmental milestones are behind, how that plays out in everyday life for kids, impacting their ability to pay attention, block out distractions, regulate their mood and emotions. And then on the flip side, we see when we mature those milestones, we see greater control and ability. And the beautiful thing is the brain can change at any age. And so you're able to strengthen uh, networks and pathways in the brain for both kids and adults. So that's what we do at Brain Balance. It's very physical, active, engaging programs that matures the brain skills and functions. So it was that experience that gave me the knowledge that change is possible and not just change in the data and the metrics, but what changes in real life for kids? What does it look like with play and social interactions and upsets at the dinner table uh, when those milestones are improved? So that awareness of data and the real life application. And then seeing some things shift and change during the pandemic is, is really what led to the book. That's awesome. So just so I understand, I, you know, if you have, you know, a five-year-old or four-year-old, six-year-old, three-year-old, whatever, you know, just kind of that age range, what are some common developmental, you know, delays that you see? And the follow-up is, always the challenge of, you know, sometimes kids are slow with their development, and sometimes they're behind, you know, the difference being slow is okay behind, maybe you need to take action. So I guess first part, if you could ask, answer that, just the types of development milestones you see that are sometimes missing or, or slow. Sure. You know, there's, there's a lot and it varies so much child by child de development and the human body and brain is, 
inordinately, I can't talk complex, but there's, it's simple things that lead to development. And so when it comes to young kids, it's early movement and early sensory interpretation that really starts to build our ability to learn, engage, and interact with the world. And one of the things I found really interesting is there's so much information out there on gross motor milestones from birth to age two. You know, we know what it looks like when a child starts to roll, sit, crawl, walk, talk. There's less information about what should that look like in a five-year-old? How do I know when a five-year-old is on track for movement and coordination? And as parents, we all tend to focus on the biggest fire in front of us, the child that's melting down or has an upset tummy and doesn't want to go to school in the morning. We focus on the moment rather than taking a step back to say, why is my child experiencing more stress and anxiety than another five-year-old? Or why is my child less comfortable in a new or social situation? And really, the more we learn about development is it's those early developmental pieces that are setting the foundation for success in the more complex. So early things to look for in those ages that you described, I'm really looking for differences compared to peers. And you know, it's it's that conundrum of you don't want to compare your kids to other kids. However, it kind of it can serve as a guidepost. So I always say, you know, if your child's in gymnastics and everybody's doing jumping jacks and your child's coordination is struggling there, that's a red flag. Not a red flag to panic. It's purely information to show you, okay, that coordination and timing might be um, a little off in my child. What can I do to support that? Kids are incredibly resilient. The brain can change. And so having a really clear understanding of where development is slightly behind empowers you to support that area to ultimately get things back on track. So two big areas that I see parents overlooking is the importance of sensory interpretation, how you take in and process sensory information that impacts our attention, our anxiety, our social interactions, our learning, our sensory interpretation is, is how we engage and interact with the world. And then not minimizing the importance of complex motor movements. And so the, the early milestones are important, but we want to see those improving over time and building in complexity, accuracy, and timing. Interesting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Yeah, both the emotional, like you're saying, sensory interpretation, some emotional guidelines or, or milestones, and then motor. And so it seems like a lot of that is probably found. I mean, I, yeah, I'd be curious, how, how do parents find out? Because like your jumping jack example is a great one. You know, I don't know how good my kid, and my kid doesn't seem great at jumping jacks, but like, None, no, I don't think kids, you know, his age are, so that's fine. <laughs> but if he's, you know, a lot worse or something to your point, but how would I, you know, I mean, unless I'm in the gym class, so I, it seems like there's a lot of communication that needs to happen with the school, or I guess, how, how is it usually brought to you? How do you usually find it from parents or, or from schools or, yeah? You know, all of the above, parents know our kids better than anyone. And we often have that, you know, tingly thought sensation in the back of our head of, is this okay? And, and I think I, I watch this internal struggle with parents where sometimes parents can have a hard time admitting or acknowledging when there's an area that's harder for their child. And what I think is so important to point out is it doesn't mean that anything is broken. It doesn't mean that there's anything wrong. But when aspects of development are immature, 
it makes things harder for the child than what it needs to be. Harder to pay attention, harder to not get in trouble, harder to to be the awesome smart kid that they are. And, and, And so to me, it's always looking for an opportunity of where can I support things for my child? Because then what, what ends up happening is the child that has a hard time keeping their hands and feet to themselves sitting in a, in a first grade classroom, now their energy is going into, I'm trying so hard to hold still when my natural is to move. And that gets in the way of listening and learning and remembering and paying attention. And so to me, it's always looking for areas of if something's harder than it needs to be. What can I do to support it, to simplify it? and So for a parent, you're going to see where the challenges are. Is it hard to get out the door in the morning and have your child remember everything on the to-do list? Is it, are you getting more meltdowns and pushback at dinner time? Does your child come home from a play date or not get asked back on a second play date? Those are the things that, that we think about and we worry that we notice that sometimes we're afraid to speak out loud, to afraid to acknowledge. And so pay attention to those pieces. It's nothing to feel bad about, guilty about. It's it's power and it's direction for support. And if you're not sure, there are so many people in our kids' lives that ultimately have their best interests at heart. Ask questions. The teacher has a room full of comparables. So to say, you know, tell me what's going really well for my child in the classroom and tell me, are there things that might be harder for my child? It doesn't mean that they're a problem kid. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong, um, but it can bring attention to an area where you maybe don't have the opportunity to observe. So ask questions and ask questions of your kids. You know, how are things going? Is there anything that's hard for you? What Was there an area that you want us to work on together to, to have it be more successful? So to me, power is knowledge. And so asking questions and and trusting your gut is key. I love that. Trusting your gut, yep, is is huge. And, and you're right, I mean, Teachers will have your best, your kid's best interest in mind if you're asking the right questions, you know, make sure you ask the right questions. And the other area that's been helpful personally are peers. So, you know, my, my friends who have kids and reaching out and just saying, oh man, like this is what's happening. And often it's a, oh no, my kid doesn't do that, but my kid does this. And, you know, you kind of have that. All right. We're <laughs> yeah. Peers, yeah. peers are huge, but here's one piece I'm going to caution you with that. And, and I, that connection and support of parents that are in it with you is is huge for community. But I often find people want to be kind and they don't want you to feel bad about anything. And that was something I struggled with in the beginning of Brain Balance. My job was to tell parents, here's what's going well, here's where things aren't going as well, and here's what we can do to support that area. It is hard to tell a parent, gosh, your child's 10, but in some areas, they're functioning like a six-year-old, which is going to make it harder for them to pay attention and learn. It's hard to deliver tough news to a parent. And I find knee-jerk reaction from friends, family, and often even other professionals is to make you feel okay about it. Of, oh, he's a boy, he'll outgrow it. Or he's six or she's six. And it's often well-meaning support. And I saw this with my own son, Drew. He had um, some minor delays in speech and language and pediatrician said to me, oh, mom, he's a boy, it's fine. It's not that it wasn't fine, but there were things that I could do to support it. And so I think true, honest information delivered kind and respectful and with the right intention is important. But, you know, that acknowledgement of, gosh, that does sound tough. I'd ask more more questions around that. Yeah, no, that's actually, that's an excellent point. Your friends are there to support you more and 
might think they have your interests in mind where you're looking for something else. And because there's other times where you just, you just want them to have your interests in mind. Right. So it's a little yeah. complicated with, yeah. with that. Um, and I don't mean to, to belittle that support at all. It, it's key and necessary, but um, that's where sometimes getting multiple perspectives. And when somebody shares a perspective, even if it's hard, listen, and I see this happening really often with parents where it's usually not the first time somebody brings a concern to them, but we see, I call it a flesh out year in third grade where gosh, now multiple teachers, multiple years in the row are telling me the same thing. And as parents, again, I think we tend to think, well, gosh, maybe if it's a different teacher, maybe if it's a different classroom, maybe if it's a different, you know, grouping of kids in that classroom, maybe things will be different, but we tend to hear the same things year after year. But sometimes as parents, we don't listen until that second or third time we hear it. And so take that information, knowing it's probably coming from a place of caring and help. And it doesn't mean that a second, third opinion isn't valuable, but, but listen and go from there. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And it's, it's easy to ignore things you don't want to hear or to, you know, not even know you're not hearing things you don't want to hear. So And uh, do you know the other thing I hear parents doing a lot, which is understandable, is is saying, you know, gosh, I was I was that same way as a kid and I turned out fine. And guess what? You probably did turn out fine. But our kids are living in a complex world. And if there's anything that we can do to support, again, I want more energy to go into making friends and having fun on the playground and learning and less energy going into trying to hold it together when I'm about to melt down or managing anxiety or trying to pay attention. And so if we can support the fundamentals of development then that energy gets to go into the good fun things rather than trying to control something that may be harder to control than it is for other kids that same age. Makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. And as you, I mean, I like also how you're talking about, you know, good fun things. I mean, it's not, uh, one thing about your book is it's not just, okay, here's all these issues, right? It's kind of the opposite. It's saying here are purposeful activities you can do with your kids you know, to make part of their daily life to to help them, right? Yeah. And I'd love to talk about that a little bit, because I, I think you need both sides, right? And say, okay, you know, I, I don't, you know, I want to be impacting both sides, I want to make sure I'm positively impacting my kids. So can you give a couple examples, um, again, maybe in that age range of a purposeful activity or two that you've, you've seen really work? Yeah, and, and you're exactly right, where if it's not accessible, and something that the kids want to do, it's not going to happen. Our lives are so busy. We're trying to cram so much in and our work, our lives are just overscheduled at this point. So I think there's, there's so many things, but one thing that I'm going to bring up is the importance of downtime where we have our kids so structured right now. And I think it's really important to understand there is great value in team sports and all the activities and things that we have our kids in. There's also value in downtime. And downtime means not engaged in technology, not in an organized activity, but that's when our brain, I I call it free range thinking. That's when our brain is bouncing from topic to topic and we're brainstorming and we're processing mood and emotions and we're forming connections and memory. When we're actively engaged in something, our brain isn't doing that. And our kids are getting less downtime. We are as adults as well. If we're not actively involved in something, we tend to grab technology that shuts off my thoughts. And so it's important for kids to have creative, free playtime. They're going to process mood and emotions. They're going to ask questions. They're going to brainstorm and think. And so as a parent, there is power in boredom. (laughs) They're going to learn how to entertain themselves. And so 
there's discomfort in it at first where kids aren't used to that. And so, you know, as parents, you're going to get the, I'm bored. What, what am I going to do? But pretty soon they're going to dig out the cardboard box and make a fort and they're going to start to get creative. Then in terms of, you know, let's talk about sensory where again, sensory is so important to development and it's what allows you and I to have this conversation right now. Even though this is being recorded, we're still watching each other. So I'm seeing, am I talking too much? Did I go way off track? And, you know, engaged, it's my ability to see you and to listen and to block out distractions so that we can engage and learn from one another. And what's important with sensory experiences with the kids is variety. Our home has all the same sensory experiences. So during the pandemic, it was like sensory repeat for our kids where our house has the same sounds and smells and texture going from carpet to hardwood floor with bare feet. So for our kids, it's finding ways to give them new and different sensory experiences and then repeating that over and over again. So something as simple as going barefoot outside provides new and different sensory experiences. So when you're going from the cold concrete to the damp, tickly grass to the gritty sand, that's providing sensory exposure. And then you want to repeat it. The first time the brain experiences something, it takes more energy to process. It's new. It's different. The brain has to decide, do I like it? Is this safe? How do I feel about it? And then you do the same thing over and over again, and the brain learns what it is and recognizes it. And so providing opportunity for different sensory exposure, which requires you to do something different. So simple things that I think is really fun at home, do dinner without silverware one night. And so have everybody, you know, I don't care if it's mashed potatoes, spaghetti, that is a different sensory experience to eat pasta and red sauce with your fingers instead of a fork. You could do a dinner in the dark where you're turning off all the lights and you're using silverware, but just by changing the lighting, that's giving you a new and different sensory experience, causing different parts of your brain to kick in to process that, that experience. So I, I love going to an ethnic grocery store. There are different smells and different sights to see. So it takes being intentional, thinking outside the confines of what we tend to do daily to provide those sensory experiences, but it builds and expands the brain when you do that. That's fantastic. I love all those examples. Yeah, sensory, because you mentioned at the beginning of our, our podcast here, you know, and it's sensory interpretation, I think is what you said. And that's pretty intimidating. I didn't know what that exactly what you meant by that. I mean, I know what you meant, but it's like, all right, well, what do we do about that? I've seen people who have that, but you just gave some amazing examples just at young ages, right? Just yeah. experience different you know, sensory sensations, right? Yeah. Well, and do you know what was exciting for me to learn the more I learn about the brain and sensory information is what they're seeing in research is there's three primary sensory pathways, sight, sound, and touch that contribute to the maturity of our emotional circuitry in the brain. So our senses are so much more than I don't like tags and textures it, it contributes to our ability to process and react to information. Um, and so there's not a single person that doesn't benefit from sensory exposure that helps to mature how the brain processes information. And then over time, start to layer that. If you're doing you know, a new sensory experience for dinner, add music in the background while you're having dinner. So combine lots of senses all at the same time to continue to expand that experience. And what do you do in that example? You know, you put music on, your kids say, no, I don't want music. I can't eat with music. Da, da, da. 
you know, it, it's, I would say it's all about dosing, right? Start small and build from there. And as parents, it's so important to realize that a new experience is different for our kids than it is for us. We, our brain has fewer new experiences. We've, we've been to baseball games and concerts and, and all the things. Our kids haven't done all of those things. And so, again, understanding that the first time the brain does something, experiences something new, you know, so think about if your child's going to begin to play soccer and they've never been to a soccer game. Think about what that is for a sensory experience. You're going to a game, there's people running around, there's people on the sidelines, birds flying around in the sky, coaches shouting, parents shouting. There's a lot happening. That can be a really overwhelming experience the first time for a child. And the brain doesn't know what's scary, what's good, what's exciting. And so the brain is on high alert for any new experience. And it's going to be processing everything. And then once it becomes familiar, the brain is going to prioritize information to say, okay, I'm going to learn to ignore the parents shouting on the sideline and only listen to the coach. I can ignore the birds. The brain learns what's important and what's not. But for our kids, that first time doing something is exhausting. So for a first time, start small, give it just a few minutes and know if you do the whole experience, your child's going to be more likely to be tired and cranky at the end of it because they just exhausted their brain. So start small, build over time, set expectations ahead of time so they can picture what it is that they're about to go do. So if you're going to start soccer, take your child and watch a soccer practice for somebody else first. Go watch just a few minutes of a game or a practice and do that a few times before going to their first practice or game to start to slowly increase. So if they don't want music at dinner, start with music with for just five minutes. Let's let's listen to music while we set the table and then we'll turn it off during dinner. Start small, build over time. I like that a lot. Thank you. That's very helpful. That's very helpful. You know, on the back on the other end where you're, you know, we try and be intentional, we try and be great parents. When we hear something could be developmentally abnormal or not whatever word you want to use, you know, we get stressed. Parents get stressed just as parents, right? Trying to live our lives with all the balls we're juggling and trying to keep the kids happy, healthy, hitting their milestones. But often we get stressed, right? And so I'd be curious, you know, how stress affects kids, how you see that affects kids, whether stress or anxiety, or it's kind of a both sides of the same coin, and how parents impact that, you know, when they're feeling negative, if you if you see that on kids, or if that's less of a Sort of sure. an issue. We could do a whole episode just <laughs> just on this topic. <laughs> you know, there's a there's a couple things to unpack here. Absolutely, our our mood sets the tone for things, and so you know, our our morning is a perfect example. If I am feeling rushed, I'm stressed at work. I'm more likely to be short and snippy with my kids. Of come on, hurry up! Are you kidding me? You forgot that we're going to be late. So my mood and tone sets sets the tone for the day. So that's something I've worked really hard on in myself is being aware of noticing my mood. It's that interoception aware of self. And so when I wake up in the morning and I'm like, boy, I can feel how crabby I am right now, being really aware of that. And so quick, what can I do to help reset my brain before I take it out on everybody around me? And, you know, quick bursts of exercise, there's what we eat, how we fuel our brain, the amount of sleep we have, and the stress that we're facing are three things that have a huge impact on our ability to regulate ourselves at every age. So if I can control that in myself, I'm more equipped to be patient and supportive of my kids. But then it's also recognizing that in them. 
a tired brain is a negative brain. And so when I start to see negative mood, negative behaviors, pushback challenges in my kids, I'm running through that same checklist in my own head. Did they get enough sleep? What have they eaten so far today? Those are, there's things that we can impact quickly to support them. And there's things that we can't. I can't change the fact at 8 a.m. that my 15 and a half year old stayed up way too late last night. So now she's tired and cranky today. I can't change that in the moment, but in the moment I can make sure that we've plugged protein and carbohydrates and healthy fats into her to maximize what she does have for abilities in that day. We know that a quick burst of exercise can help recharge and re-energize the brain that helps us to be more positive and, and be more productive in the window following that amount of time. And then understanding Human nature is if we don't feel equipped to do what's been asked of us, to to have a hard time with that. And so if I've got a kid melting down over math homework, one of the things I'm going to sit back and ask myself is, okay, if he's having a hard time right now, there's something that he's not feeling equipped to do. Does he not understand it? Does he feel like he doesn't have enough time to get it done? So I'm going to look to see how can I help to problem solve this with building awareness in him. So you know, saying, Hey, do you need me to sit with you for a little while? Do you need to review a concept? If I can help problem solve the stress that can help guide in that moment. And this is something that we saw huge throughout the pandemic is we know that stress and change are absolutely exhausting to the brain. And a tired brain is going to be more negative. It's going to have a harder time concentrating and regulating our mood and emotions. And Hopefully, we'll never face another pandemic. We will certainly face times in the future of stress and change. And so knowing, understanding the impact, it essentially creates an uphill battle. So whatever challenges you have, it's going to exacerbate those challenges. So you don't need to have ADHD to have stress impact you. But if you already struggle with attention and mood regulation, and now you're stressed, it's even harder. So it's the amplifier of all things. Yeah, no, I, I mean, and, and you know, you, you gave a great answer talking both about how stress is affecting parents and also how it's affecting kids. And parents, to your earlier point, like we have a lot more experience. We are more equipped. So for us, it's, it's like, we'll get over it. We're not quite like that, but, you know, like we know the tools we can use that can help us. But when a kid's stressed, uh, they also don't even always understand why they're stressed. You know, to our point, we're tired, we're hungry. We're, yeah. And sometimes you just wake up in a bad mood, you know, that's, so I think trying to get that out of your child in a good way, trying to communicate, which I've done by, you know, doing the reverse saying, you know, gosh, guys, I'm, I'm dad's in a bad mood this morning. I didn't sleep very well. And uh, if you could be a little more helpful, it doesn't work by the way, but at least, <laughs> at least I tell them. <laughs> but Will, no, that, that's so important and good. You're bringing awareness to them, even though, you know, you're going to say it over and over and they're going to roll their eyes, but someday they're going to be like, I'm tired. Oh, wait, maybe that's why I'm so cranky right now. They will make those connections over time, even if they don't ever admit to you. But think about it in ourselves. It is a process to learn ourselves and to learn to be able to communicate effectively about that. And so modeling that for our kids is so important and building that awareness. And that's something that we talk about in the book in in several areas and at different stages is how do we start to build that interoception, that awareness of self from a really young age. And that, you know, I I always say, when you're observing, give two things, give a, here's what I see and here's what I'm hearing. So, you know, I'm noticing right now, Drew, for my, my 13 year old, 
your face is looking really stressed right now. And I can tell by look, you know, by the tone of your voice that, that you're really frustrated. So I'm telling you by your posture and your voice that I'm aware that you're stressed. So now he's suddenly on some level aware that his, his posture and tone has changed with stress. So it is making those connections slowly over time and then repeating it and feeling like nobody's listening to you. And then suddenly <laughs> you have that moment where they do say it back to you and you're like, bite your tongue. Don't say I told you so. But it's like, gosh, something I did really, really did pay off years down the road. Yeah, no, thank you. That's, that's uh, helpful to hear. And, you know, you mentioned uh, the P word, unfortunately, the pandemic, and <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm not expecting another one. Hopefully that was the past, etc. However, you know, there's going to be flu seasons, there's going to be kids get sick, etc. You, you just never know what the future holds. So I'd be curious, during the pandemic, sort of what you saw specifically that impact you like, developmental milestones were particularly impacted in kids. And just as dads, what we should be more vigilant about if we do kind of get back in a situation like that, or even again, just this type of flu season where kids are out more, whatever, whatever the case may be. You know, I think we need to to first acknowledge that every person was impacted to some degree. This was a, you know, it wasn't a one month period, it was a prolonged time. And even if you know, we were fortunate in our scenario where our kids only missed a few months of school and they continued to be in school. My husband and I both work from home. So in a lot of ways, we were impacted day to day less than a lot of other families. That being said, life still changed. You changed how you ran errands. You changed, you know, in kids who were in, in virtual school for longer. So if we go back to movement and sensor exposure, those experiences change drastically for our kids and especially our younger kids. So our infants and toddlers during that time, we weren't bringing them to the grocery store and to Target to run errands. We weren't exposing them unnecessarily to germs. And and I mean, no guilt with any of this. Everybody did what they were comfortable with based on the information that we had at the time. But we altered our kids' sensory experiences and sports and activities and social pieces changed and became less. So in a lot of ways, our kids had far less sensory exposure, far less social interaction, and some less physical activity. So if your kids were just running around the house and in the backyard, that was different than going to 12 different parks and playing at somebody else's house. And, you know, being in gymnastics and all these, these different activities or experiences. And so from, from infants as young as six months old during the pandemic time, there were changes in gross motor and communication milestones at six months. And there were seeing structural changes in the brain as well. So altering what we did altered the brain. And it altered the brain in foundational development pieces. But yet we still have a 10-year-old with 10-year-old expectations for what does behavior look like, what does social interactions look like, what does a 10-year-old look like in a fifth grade classroom. But what can happen is, is if there's areas of immaturity, it might be a 10-year-old body sitting in the classroom that some aspects of development might be more in line with a seven-year-old. So that's going to look different when they're interacting with peers, how they handle themselves when they're frustrated. So as parents, being mindful that things changed, there is an impact. It doesn't mean we have to panic and worry. It doesn't mean that anything's broken or wrong with your child. But the more we can do now to give a ton of physical movement and a ton of sensory exposure and a ton of social, 
so many lessons are learned on the playground of I get in your face, I irritate you, you walk away. And then I think, oh gosh, if I want to play with you again, I need to change my behavior. And so our kids just had a period of time where they had less opportunity for play, experimentation, learning, and that is the reality. And, but there's something we can do about it. So, and, and for me, it's, I focus on the child, not there's a time and a place for a diagnosis, but so often these concerns are so much broader than a diagnosis. And so sensory perception impacts everything we do, not just kids with sensory processing disorder. Struggles with attention is not limited to just ADHD. If you're experiencing anxiety or you're experiencing stress, that can also impact our attention. So it's knowing what we can do to support foundational development, to support our whole child uh, and everything going forward. I like, I no, like, I like no, that. I, like. I mean, it's what it comes down to all this, this whole conversation is, you know, as parents we're, in my opinion, this is what, this is what I boil our conversation down. So everyone can take it for, <laughs> for what they'd like. But for me, it's I always, you know, as parents, this is our job to raise our kids and no one answers to our, to raising our kids, except us, you know, our teachers, they have their opinions and they, they're trying to help our kids. And maybe they're, you know, your kids, grandparents or your parents, or your in-laws, your friends, everyone's going to have opinions your doctors, your medical professionals. But at the end of the day, you know, as parents, we need to go with, take all the information, we need to make sure we're getting information, good information, sift through it, and do what we think is right. I mean, there's not always a right answer in terms of X or Y. Uh, but there is a right answer in just saying, okay, this is what I this is what I or me and my partner think is best for, for our child or kids. And this is how we're going to move forward. But this has been so helpful. I don't know if that summary, same conversation. Do you feel like that was the same conversation we had? (laughs) Because ultimately, nobody's going to have our kids best interests at heart to the same degree that we do. I am my child's only number one advocate. And so if I'm not doing what I can with the tools that I have available to, to support. And, you know, again, when I think about and writing a book was a lot of work. That was the first time I've done it. But I the information was so exciting to me and so important. And I just I want to make it accessible to everyone. There's a starting point for everyone where the brain is so complex. So here are things that we can do on a daily basis that's twofold. Number one, how can I optimize the skills and abilities you have right now? And then what can I do to optimize the development of those skills and abilities going forward? So absolutely, as a parent, it's up to us. But it, it's it's a fun and exciting and crazy journey and experience. And I find the more I learn about kids and development, the more I learn about myself that I think makes me a better parent and a better person, um, I hope anyway, so that we can model those things and, and support the development of those things in our kids as well. That's fantastic. Rebecca, this has been really informative, really educational and in all the good ways. It's very actionable. Everything you said was actionable. And your book is, is the same. Do you want, where, where should people go to check you out? Sure. You can learn more at, you can follow me on Instagram at drrebeccajackson.com and you can get the book anywhere you buy books, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, indiebooks.com, wherever you like to support book sales. And Brain Balance is a great place to start if you need an assessment for a child. Development is complex. And it's, again, from our perspective, it's not about the label or diagnosis. There's lots of other people that specialize and focus on that. We're really focused at brain balance of what can we do to strengthen and maximize the brain to support everything going forward. So it minimizes concerns with attention and cognition and behavior um, so that your kid gets to be the kid that they are instead of um, burning all the energy, trying to control things that are harder for them than what they may need to be. 
Yeah, no, that's amazing. I mean, that was another just fantastic point you made is just, it makes their lives harder when they're trying to do things that they aren't able, they don't have the tools, they're not equipped. So as parents, we're helping them by giving them those tools. I mean, that's, that's uh, right on. Again, the book is called Back on Track. Rebecca, thank you so much. This has been an awesome conversation and hope to talk to you soon. Great. Thanks for having me. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you haven't joined us yet, go to adadspath.com to get our free newsletter exclusively for dads. And do you know a friend who might like this podcast? Send it on. We want to help as many dads as possible make fatherhood count. Dad on. Thank <laughs> you.